We're very hard-hearted, very stubborn, very bitter. Lord, I pray that the cracks begin to make their way around and that your light begin to shine inside, Father. That your love come bursting forth. That you take the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to continue our worship with our offering. If we could have the ushers come forward as well. Follow along this morning and when they're done, show Jacob in the sound booth their completed notes and they can cash in for some chips or whatever goodies we have back there. Uh, for the rest of you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. This text is kind of a longer text. It's not the longest block of text I've ever preached before, but it's definitely a little more wordy than some. And it's, it's a very intense portion of Scripture, a very deep thing that we're see hap- we, we see happening here within our Bibles. If you would, go ahead and stand with me as we read from the text this morning, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. You may be seated this morning. Titled this message, The Unjust Trial of Jesus. There's nothing about this trial that is right. We see him being led by Judas into this courtyard, into this pit of vipers, surrounded by enemies. He says nothing until the time calls for it. This is happening late at night, the night of Passover, by the way. It's a holiday weekend. How many of you would love the idea of jury duty on a holiday weekend? Probably not very many. And yet, here they are. And that tells you the viciousness, the the violent hatred that they have toward Jesus, that they are willing to come to this place and participate in this kangaroo court as it might be called and all in an effort to bring his death about we read this and the one thing we can take away is the unjust trial of christ brings god's justice to us i'll say that again the unjust trial of christ actually brings god's justice to us in all our lives we face unjust trials 
Life's not fair. Oftentimes, it seems we're stuck with the short end of the stick when it comes to justice, as if we're meant to pay the price for something that we never really asked for. To quote a movie that the youth group recently did not fully appreciate as much as I thought they would, life is pain, and anyone who says otherwise is selling something. But the point of this text is not, it's not about our trials. It's about the unjust trial that Christ faced. He faced it on our behalf. Next week we might be able to say that it's more about our trial. But this is about the unjust suffering that Christ himself experiences on our behalf. That the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. That the atoning sacrifice for our sins will be made upon the cross. That salvation might be purchased for us by God himself. We often read this and we say, well, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And, and we don't want to dig too much deeper into the unfair trial of Christ. We know for a fact Jesus never did anything wrong. Jesus never sinned. Jesus hasn't been doing anything illegal. And yet here he is on trial for standing for truth, for telling the truth, for healing people, for doing good. You have to ask yourself, why are they so determined? You might wonder, why, why do they want to make sure that Jesus is executed? Why would Jesus have to go through this? Why would he have to be beaten, shamed even more, humiliated even more, to go through this mockery of a trial, to stand, this mockery of a trial, and then stand for more mockery on the cross? The answer is throughout Scripture, actually, if one merely knows how to read it. Since Genesis, we see that what man has meant for evil, God will use for his good. In fact, it's the, same, it's the same Sunday school answer so often given. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That does not happen without the cross. Why did Jesus suffer? In short, because God is love. Why did Jesus suffer? Because God is also just. He can be neither of those things if he's not both of those things. The unjust trial of Christ brings God's justice to us. And the setting itself, the mere place where it takes place, and, and the, the air around it is just unjust. It's wrong. We read back in verse 53, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the, high, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This mob, led by Judas Iscariot, leads Jesus to face his trial. Now, the order of the night, if, you, if you've read in the other Gospels and kind of want to keep a chronological idea in your mind what's happening here, there's an arraignment that's already happened before the high priest Annas. Annas and Caiaphas are both high priests at the same time. This is a very rare occurrence. Annas is the father-in-law of Joseph Caiaphas. And there will be an arraignment before him. John tells us this in John 18. There's a trial, though, that takes place before Joseph Caiaphas, who's the real, I, I would call him the real high priest, the main high priest. Even though Caiaphas is unnamed in our text, that's really who is conducting this, this court. Matthew lets us know this in Matthew 26. And just after dawn, there will be a sentencing. They will they will hand Jesus over to Pilate. Matthew 27, 1 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
And when you understand that, you'll understand why even that is unjust. But that's the, the sort of general outline as to what's to come for Jesus. And Mark is focusing mostly on this trial before Caiaphas right now. And it's an unjust trial. The setting itself, like I said, is unjust. It's unheard of. It's not just unorthodox. It's, it's wrong. Mark tells us all the chief priests, all of them, and the elders, the scribes, they come together. These are the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, the high priest himself presiding over all of this. Again, this is on a holiday evening. This is in the middle of the night. You might think this would be an informal trial. No, they, they, they already got their minds made up, so this is just a formality, really. No, no, they want it to be legal even though it's not right. The fact that all of the Sanhedrin shows up, it tells us they're taking this very seriously. And they ought to because they're breaking the Jewish law to make it happen. I said it's not illegal. It's not illegal under Roman law. But under Hebrew law, it very much is. The fact that they're all there, again, they only needed a quorum of 23 men but Mark says they all make an appearance. Well, the trial itself is unjust. It's, like I said, it's not illegal under Rome, but it's unbiblical. It's against the law, proving that just because something is legal does not make it right. I'll say that again because somebody needs to hear that. Just because something is legal does not make it right. The religious leaders are going to do everything they can to make the verdict of this trial stick. They want to be hasty. They want to get the business done so that in the morning it's the first thing on the Roman docket when they come to have their court in the morning. And now that they have Jesus in custody, this guy they've been trying to capture for so long, they want to move things quickly. They don't want to allow any room for an appeal, any interference, any motions for acquittal, uh, or, or any kind of mistrial. They know their case is unjust. And like I said, the very setting of the court is unheard of. But they will not have its outcome undone. And Mark does also remind us that there's a story sandwich going on. We've talked about this. There's another story kind of happening alongside this. As we look in verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, it's important that Mark tells us this because he's telling us the location of the trial, that it's in the courtyard. We'll get more into the story of Peter next week, but but he's in the courtyard of the high priest. John 18, 15 says, says the same thing, that Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We know that's John. And he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Why does that matter? Why, why is that important? Why does it matter that the court is being held at the high priest's house? Because it's not the temple where the trials typically are held. Imagine having a secret board meeting at the parsonage and not inviting the pastor or one of the board members. How much controversy in a small church that could cause. Well, this is that times a billion. The crowds can't get to this. 
His followers can't speak on his behalf if they do this. Unless we forget, it's taking place in the middle of the night. Most people don't know this is happening. Most trials were held in the marketplace in broad daylight next to the temple, but not the trial of Jesus. Here, here it's taking place as under wraps as it can be in the yard of the high priest's home, his courtyard. And there sits Peter, just sitting outside with the temple guards. The same people who in under an hour ago was arresting his Lord, arresting his best friend, arresting his rabbi. And here Peter now mingles with them as if trying to get lost in the crowd. He wants to see what will happen. Matthew tells us Peter was following him at, his di- at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going in set, he sat down with the guards to see the end. I said last week, it's a cold night. Mark tells us that here. Peter's warming himself by the fire. It's actually the fact that he's warming himself by the fire. That's going to be what's his undoing in this because the fire will show his face and he'll be found out. But we'll dig into that, like I said, more next week. In the meantime, Mark tells us court is in session, verses 55 and 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now we have to understand what just got said in light of the Old Testament, in light of Deuteronomy which is where God talks about the court and the way it's supposed to proceed in Hebrew culture. Deuteronomy 19.16 says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, and you skip down just a couple of verses, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge evil from your midst. You catch that? You understand what's happening These people who are testifying to put Jesus on a cross themselves, knowing that their testimony is false, knowing that everything they're saying is wrong, should be marched to the cross themselves. And yet, who will go in their place? By all accounts, his punishment should fall upon his accusers, not the accused. Notice this too. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. They had to look for it because you couldn't find any. It's not like people were offering this up. They're looking for it. The Greek word is as a tone. They had to search. Nobody's coming forth because the truth is he's not done anything wrong. Their accusations were against, were, they were false. They could not convict him using the truth. They had to pervert justice. And in doing so, they are violating the law. These men so passionately accuse Jesus of tearing down. They tear it down themselves. And if you remember from your own personal Bible study, the law required an agreement between at least two witnesses. It says so in two different parts of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17 On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, in in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
I may sound a little bit like the old attorney Johnny Cochran here, but if the stories don't jive, Jesus should be alive. Some of you who didn't live through the 90s, it's showing. So, Their stories are untrue. They don't mesh. We read on in verses 57 and 58. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. To be clear, at this point, the trial should be over. Shouldn't be anything even continuing. They are forcing it to continue. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are forcing this trial to proceed when it should be a mistrial and already done. These witnesses have incriminated themselves. If the high priest were doing his job presiding over this case and doing it fairly, the court's adjourned. Everything's done. Jesus can go home. He can go back to his disciples, go back to the upper room. Whatever he wants, that doesn't happen. No, they're going to drag it out. So now more stand up. Matthew tells us it's at least two different witnesses, and they've no doubt conspired together. Matthew tells us at least two came forward. And these two are going to have an inconsistent and false testimony. They're purposely misrepresenting Jesus' own words. What they say he said and what he actually said are two totally different things. Could be argued they didn't understand Jesus' words, but that does not track with this crowd. They didn't care for the meaning of Jesus' words. They didn't care for the context. So they twisted it to their own means, kind of like a lot of people do today with Jesus' words. Jesus had said in John's Gospel... Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record him saying this, but in John 2, 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we know he was talking about his body. But of course, like I said, these witnesses don't care about the truth. And it's not consistent with what they say. Of all the things Jesus said, of all the things that they could have convicted him for, many times referring to himself as God's son, as Yahweh himself, of all the things to bring up, why, you might wonder, why would they settle on this? Doesn't it seem like such a small thing? To say, I don't like this building, I'm going to tear it down and I'll rebuild it? At least he's going to rebuild it. I mean, there's that. Why, why do they make such a, a problem out of this? Because in this era, to claim to destroy the temple was a big deal. It was a capital offense. In fact, by the time we get to Paul in Acts 21, he, it's an arrestable offense to even bring in a Gentile or a Greek, as he was accused, to bring them into certain parts of the temple. That was the accusation leveled against him. He brought a Greek into the temple. That was me being fake shocked, you know. That's what he was in trouble for. But to talk about destroying the temple or the sanctuary, as some translations have the sanctuary is the innermost part of the temple. That's not something the Jewish people took lightly. And if you know their history, you understand why. Because Babylon came and tore it down, right? And since mm, Ezra and Nehemiah, they've been trying to rebuild it. And since about 20 BC, they've been making it pretty. They've been making it beautiful. And now Jesus comes along and reportedly, allegedly, says, I'm going to tear it all down. 
Josephus tells us the story of another man named Jesus, Jesus ben Ananias, who in 62 AD, he kept predicting that the temple would be ruined. Well, in 70 AD, it was, right? We know Rome burns it down. And the Jews wanted this, this Jesus ben Ananias, they wanted him put to death too, but Rome just had him flogged to the bone and then released. If Jesus of Nazareth were to only had this done, we're going to see Pilate, that's all he really wants done. That's all he has in mind for Jesus, but the Jews want death. It's not good enough for them. But even in this accusation, the case is falling apart. Verse 59, it says, Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So even here, it, it's, their, their testimony is inconsistent. It's unequal. Everything should just be thrown out at this point. There should be no point in continuing this trial. It should be dismissed, ended, done. And yet Jesus stands there in his defense and says nothing. And this doesn't sit well with him either, this unexpected silence. Verse 60 reads, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? You understand what is happening here is that he's losing the court. He's losing the trial. So Caiaphas, in his wisdom, he lashes out. He's taking matters into his own hands. And now, the, the one who should be the judge, should be neutral, is no qualms about it. He's now taking on the role of the prosecutor. This is an unfair trial. By all, all measures. He's attacking Jesus. He's not mad that the justice system is falling apart before his eyes and these witnesses have done nothing to help the, the proceedings. He's not mad at the other priests, the scribes, the religious leaders who can't seem to find a decent case or a decent testimony against this man. He's not mad at himself, of course. He's mad. He's angry at Jesus. You answer nothing? You have nothing to say for yourself? Well, of course he does. Of course, he says nothing. That's the scriptures being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 7, he's oppressed, he's afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Caiaphas says, you hear what these men are testifying against you? And Jesus won't dignify it with a response. Jesus does not have to answer them, by the way. Verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus' silence has brought the courtroom to a standstill. So Caiaphas is now trying a new approach. Cards on the table. Let's be blunt. Are you or are you not the Christ? the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah. Are you the Son of God? Except Caiaphas doesn't ask him quite like that. He says, are you the Son of the Blessed or the Blessed One? This is a challenge to any claim of deity. The questions about Jesus' identity is, or, or who he claimed to be is still going around. If there's any rumor, if there's any truth to the rumor, is he the coming king? This is the time to find out. He asked him if he is the son of the blessed one. The blessed one. This is a 
Jewish wording that helps avoid the using of God's name, of using Yahweh. Remember, the, the Jewish people didn't like to use God's holy name. So they're very cautious about this. And they, don't, they use other euphemisms instead and rather than have to spell it out. And that's what makes Jesus' reply all the more serious, all the more, if you will, a thumb in their eye, and all the more a shocking answer. Look at his reply, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He said, I am. When, Jesus, when, when God was questioned by Moses as to his name, what was, Moses, or what was God's response? He said, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you. Jesus could not give a more pointed, more direct answer to this question in any way. You want your cards on the table, Caiaphas? Well, here's mine. I am. That's what just happened. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He wants to clarify that answer. He says, I am, and you shall see. Jesus is not, when he says this, by the way, he's not suggesting that Caiaphas is going to see this in his lifetime, but he's referring to that final resurrection and that judgment. He says, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Church, this is powerful stuff. When we read this, we should have a sense of awe about what Jesus is revealing in this courtroom at this time. You're going to see this. And so is Caiaphas. I'm going to see that. We are all going to see this. Revelation said, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is the moment as believers, as followers of Christ, we say, Yes! We get excited about this. We say, hey, bring it. I can't wait. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He says this. He's, he's actually referencing Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He's going to be there in victory. He's going to be there in power. In Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Don't think for one second that Caiaphas does not know what Jesus is referencing here. Don't think his blood is not boiling when he hears this. Of course, the New Testament's going to expand on this and Acts and Hebrews and Revelation. He's seated at the right hand of power now. He's interceding on our behalf with the Father. But there's coming a day where the clouds of heaven are going to part and the trumpet will sound and our Lord will return and come and take His church. And we long for that. And Caiaphas, that priest, you Caiaphas, and you, me, all of us, we will see him coming on the clouds. I get excited about that. In Acts 11, the angels tell the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Revelation tells us that there's coming a day where he's going to come and he's going to make war against the Antichrist, the devil, the, the armies of darkness. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to that great white throne of judgment so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Caiaphas, that day is coming. And if you're in Christ... If you've submitted your life to him, this, this very Jesus, our text, is telling us was unjustly put on trial. If you acknowledge him as Lord of your life, you can look forward to that day. That day is not a day of terror, as it will be for those who pierced him. But for us, it will be a day of rejoicing, a day of singing and shouting and dancing and hallelujah, the king is back. Jesus makes this very clear to Caiaphas. In fact, there's a very subtle statement being made here. I believe that he looked Caiaphas right in the eye as he said this. Because the undercurrent message, the thing that should horrify Caiaphas, and I think what makes him so angry and hits him so deep down in his soul is simply this. Jesus is saying, you have made an unjust court and an unjust trial. But one day you will stand before the perfect judge and you will answer for your part in all of this. And at that thought, Caiaphas becomes unhinged. Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? Now, at first glance, knowing what you know about the religious elite in Israel in this time and day, you might say, well, he's just zealous for righteousness. He's just really zealous for the Word of God, for the law of God. And he's just, he's just tearing his garments because, you know, that's what you do. He's not, telling his, he's not tearing his priestly garments. You should understand that. It's, it's his inner garment that he tears. It'd be like me pulling out my T-shirt and just going Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to do that. That would be, nobody wants that. But this is what he does. And it's required by the high priest anytime he's in the presence of blasphemy. But Caiaphas does this for dramatic effect. It's a display of grief and indignation over what Jesus has just said. In this moment, for those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, yes, he does. Right here in his trial, he claims to be God. And this is, for Caiaphas, way too much for him to handle. He takes his job seriously, his positions seriously, his, his faith for Caiaphas is serious. But more than that, he likes his position of power. And he and his father-in-law, Annas, they want Jesus dead more than anybody for two reasons. Jesus has defied the high priest's claim that the high priest should be the one who rules in the temple. And he threatened to shut down their money machine. If you remember just a few days before this, as he flipped over the tables and cleansed the temple. So Caiaphas, this is his moment. This is the only reason we even really remember him. There's archaeological evidence of his existence, sure, but this is why he makes it into the pages of the Bible. This, this is what he was wanting. He has hit pay dirt. He believes Jesus has incriminated himself. These are the charges. This is what they need to discredit him. In the eyes of the public and in the eyes of those who followed Jesus and even those who followed him secretly. Don't forget Nicodemus is somewhere in this room. 
In the eyes of the government, the Roman interest now should even be perked up. Oh, oh, so he is a king. He is an upstart revolutionary. He is someone who believes he is owed a throne. This man sees himself as the deliverer of Israel. So surely now he's a threat to Roman rule. Now their rule stated that before they could pass judgment in the Sanhedrin, they were actually to deliberate. They were to take a break, go have a small meal, break down into pairs and and have conversations. How do you feel about this? How do you, what do you think? Do you think he's guilty? Do you think he's innocent? There should be a pause here to make sure that justice is going to prevail. In fact, the sentence was typically decided by the following day, not in an instant. But none of that happens. Caiaphas sees to that. Verse 64 says, You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. This supposed blasphemy, it's an irreverence, it's slander of God. Levitical law demanded that, th- that such a thing be punishable by death. But the Jewish tradition was not to turn them over to somebody else. In Leviticus 24, it says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. The way of stoning him, they were going to drag him outside the city and beat him to death with rocks. That's that's what you're supposed to do to a blasphemer. That's what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So they condemned Jesus not as an insurrectionist, not as a threat, not as a treasonous robber like he had said they were going to arrest him in the, in the garden. Not as someone who's looking to overthrow Caesar, but as a blasphemer. Technically now, only the Roman court can order any kind of capital punishment. In this, in this story of Stephen, of course, the Jewish leaders have no problem taking the execution upon their own hands. But in the case of Jesus, they know he's innocent. They don't want his blood on them. So they turn him over to the Roman authorities. Because God has a different plan. Rather than being broken by rocks, Jesus will be broken by the cross. Because of the charge of blasphemy, the, the whole crowd begins to turn on him, begins to turn on Jesus. Verse 65, our last passage, it says, Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. To spit in his face, this is one of the greatest, in the Jewish mindset, one of the most hateful forms of insults. Numbers tells us it's basically to be excluded from the nation of Israel, to be cut off from the people at least for seven days. God makes that clear in the case of Miriam's leprosy in Numbers 12. This would defile Jesus. This would make him unclean to be in the temple. And worse yet, they blindfold him, they beat him with their fists, and they say, now prophesy. This is a complete disrespect of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but even more to his claims. Isaiah 11 said the true Messiah would be able to judge not by what his eyes saw, but by his own righteousness. And so they think they're, they're testing that. They think in their own twisted way they're proving 
that Jesus is not who he says. But when you understand Isaiah, Isaiah reads, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and, the, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You understand if Jesus fulfills this prophecy, he vaporizes those people who are hitting him. He wipes them out. And so he remains quiet. If Jesus really is the Messiah and mockery both of him and of scriptures that prophesied about him, they, they hit him with their fists. When the officers receive him, they slap him in the face. And this isn't to hurt him, by the way. This is to shame him, to attack his character. And yet through it all, Peter tells us Jesus remained silent. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we have to ask, why does this all happen? Why must he suffer such indignation? Because the cross stands in the distance. Because the good news is only good if the price of sin is paid for. And Jesus is marching towards it as the crowd mocks him, as the soldiers beat him, and as the night goes on. The unjust trial of Christ exists so that Christ pays the price of God's justice on our behalf. Why does Jesus face Caiaphas? Why does he suffer through this trial? The Apostle Paul writes it this way, God being rich in his mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The unjust trial of Jesus brings that to us because it brings Jesus to the cross. Maybe you're here and you're, maybe you're watching online and we're just really beginning to get into the suffering of Christ. And maybe you've heard these things and, and you say in your heart, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm not worth the suffering of Jesus. I'm not either. And because of his love for us, he went through it to prove that he is God, a God worth loving, a God worth serving, that Jesus is Lord and the only one worth that title. We're going to close in just a second in a song. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And maybe you're here, maybe you are going through a trial of your own, and you'd like prayer. Maybe you'd like someone to come beside you and pray with you. Maybe you're just simply in a valley. You're just saying, I don't know where the next step is. I feel spiritually empty. I feel a void within me. I would challenge you today to find a place to pray. If you'd like someone to pray with you, find your way to the front. And myself or one of our prayer team will be happy to pray with you. But I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to worship together as we close. And we'll take time to, to do a, a dis prayer of dismissal. But whatever you're facing, whatever your week holds, whatever the week you've had just and that you've just gone through holds. This is an example of God's grace, that he loves, that he cares, that he 
sent his son for us. Not because we're worth it, but because he is. Because he's loved, because he's just. We worship with us this morning as we close.